All right, let's stand and pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to be here today, and I thank you for the generosity of your people um, blessing me. I pray that you'd uh, bless them in return. I pray that you would um, just um, multiply their generosity, Lord, and, and just bring it back upon them. We do pray your blessing on the word today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that dwells in us uh, to teach us, instruct us. And we ask that he would illuminate the word to us today that we could uh, receive, understand, uh, obey, be changed. And ultimately, Lord Jesus, that through your word we would honor and glorify you more. We pray all this in your name. Amen. I want to open with uh, two scriptures today. Romans 1 is the first one I'd like to read, if you'd like to turn there in your Bible. And the uh, title of the sermon today is The Person and Promise of the Gospel. Romans 1, Paul says in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark says in verse 1, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, when you read the book of Mark, Mark has this unique ability to say more by saying less. And some some of the... It's the shortest gospel because he appears to say less, but in a lot of ways he says more because he gives, he compresses a lot of things into a very short compass. Um, what I want to address today is the gospel and the person of the gospel, or we could say the focus of the gospel. Um, but by, by way of introduction, it we live in a time of many Gospels. Um, when I say many Gospels, I don't just mean the Gospel of universalism or what is often called religious pluralism. That's, that's one Gospel, but that's the Gospel that every Gospel is equal. So whether it's the Hindu Gospel or the Muslim Gospel or the, the Baha'i Gospel or the New Age Gospel or the Christian Gospel or all of those Gospels essentially are the same thing. Someone was telling me the other day, uh, it might have been one of my kids, they were talking to someone uh, who was Hindu, and in their conversation, the, the, the person basically said, well, you're a Christian, I'm a Hindu, but we're all going to the same place. We're on a different path, but it's all heading to the same destination. That's, you know, that's the, the, the pluralistic gospel. Uh, one, there's many roads to God and they're all essentially the same. They might look different, but they all end up in the same place. So it doesn't matter what religion you belong to. Um, if you're on one of those roads, you will get there. Um, that, of course, is a false gospel according to scripture. But, that's less disturbing to me than the false gospels we have in the church, and um, and the 
in America and, and maybe around the world, because my daughter, who's been to India and Africa, tells me that the Americanized gospel has been exported, unfortunately. And so we see the, uh, similar things around the world where we have a gospel of prosperity, a gospel of success, a gospel of personal fulfillment. And so the center of the gospel becomes not God and not Jesus Christ, but the center of the gospel becomes the autonomous self. The center of the gospel becomes me and my happiness. Right? That's the American gospel. I was at Barnes & Noble the other night looking at books and in the Christian bestsellers, of course, we had Joel Osteen. We have some others who are selling the gospel of personal affluence. That is a false gospel. Um, I, I got I got a notice in the mail, an invitation to a church, and I want to read a little. I was going to put it on a thing for you, but I thought I'd uh, spare you the pictures. Anyway, um, th- this is an advertisement that came in the mail. It says, what if you could have, what if you could, what, what? Yeah, okay. It's kind of, it's written weird. It's laid out weird. What if you could better your relationships? Hmm. Come here, how to make changes that last. Then they give dates for the, the messages that are coming up. How you can really change. How you can be free from the past. How you can have new habits. How you can break free financially. How you can change your relationships. And then in the bigger print it says, Not there yet. Haven't been to church for a while or ever. Perfect. Come to Blah Blah Church. I won't name it. Don't want to be that mean. Because it's a guilt-free zone. No judgment and no perfect people allowed. Just come as you are. We're all new and we're being made new. If you need a fresh start or a second chance, come to Blah Blah Church. It's the place for you. And bring this card for a free book. Now, the thing I want to mention about Blah Blah Church is in their advertisement, there's not a word about God. There's not a word about Jesus. Now, I don't know. Maybe they're preaching the real gospel and they're just trying to trick us to get in there. They're trying to trick people to go who don't like God and Jesus. Maybe. I don't know. So I don't want to be too hard. But I know this. This this is not promoting, at least on by appearance, this is not promoting the gospel. Because the gospel is not about me being successful. The gospel is not about me having better relationships. The gospel is not about me being financially successful. The gospel is not about me um, at all. The focus of the gospel is not about me. And you know what that means. It's not about you either. (laughs) I mean, you know, this, this might seem like a very simple, obvious thing, but I'm telling you, the, 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 the advertisements for Christianity in our culture, the books that are selling the best, the, the um, premise upon which many of us function, even unwittingly, is the premise of it's about me. And it's not about me. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that on the card, of course, 
everybody is smiling. Everybody's smiling. I don't know about you, but there's days I don't smile. How about you? There's days when I have to take up the cross, and the cross is painful. It doesn't make me smile. There's days I have to deny myself, and it doesn't make me smile. So, you know, we are, we are surrounded. Our whole culture preaches the gospel of prosperity, even in the secular realm. And in many, many of, uh, of the churches are now preaching the same gospel. As I said, it's being exported around the world. And to say that this is, does not influence us is simply not true. Because that message is perfectly congenial. Are you listening? Perfectly congenial with my human nature. Because my human nature is to place myself at the center of the universe. That's what the fall was all about. The fall was Adam deciding that his word would be law and not God's word. God wasn't Lord anymore. Adam was going to be Lord because he was going to define and know good and evil, you see. Not knowing it based upon what God said, but knowing it based upon his choice and his determination. You know, when I I used to read the the account in Genesis about the expulsion from the the garden, I used to think, man, God, you're kind of hard. You're like, that's... They just ate a fruit. What's the deal? The deal was, it was a moral revolution inverting the entire moral order of the universe. It was saying to God, you step aside, I'm the center. My will, my desires are the center. And your desire, your word, your law is now subordinate to what I want. That's really what happened. Now, none of us would do this consciously, would we? I don't know, maybe we would. But we certainly can do it unconsciously. And we have to understand that that the gospel of of personal affluence is profoundly seductive. Profoundly seductive. It's, It's what I want to hear. Or should I say, it's what my flesh wants to hear. Now, let me clarify something right now. I think God wants to bless his people. I think God wants his people successful. I think God wants his people to prosper. But we have to understand something. We have to define the word prosperity in a biblical way. We have to define success in a biblical way. We can't say these things and then and then grab verses to support uh, our position and then and then import into what we're saying contemporary notions of what success is or what prosperity is. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to come back to Mark in a minute, but but look just. See, see what Jesus said here. It's just, I mean, this is revolutionary. In, in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed, are you there, Matthew 5? 
Look at look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, nobody on this card is mourning. Nobody's in sackcloth. Nobody's in ashes. Nobody's crying. Nobody's bowing down on their face. This is a different gospel than this. Jesus here is going, he's, he's taking what Adam did when Adam inverted the moral order and saying, okay, I'm turning it back. I'm flipping it back. Now, Jesus says poverty of spirit, humility, understanding our bankruptcy apart from him, mourning for our sins, being meek, Seeking justice and righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, all of these things. Jesus is saying, this is how you define success. This is what true prosperity is. Amen? Amen. John says he has no greater joy than his children walk in truth. And he says, I, 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 I want to see my, my children prosper in, in their soul, prosper in their health. But what does prosperity mean? Does it mean more money, a bigger house, a better car, a promotion? Is that the prosperity of the gospel? Now, I'm not saying God doesn't want to bless us with many things. Matter of fact, if you're living in America, if you're sitting in the church, guess what? You've already been blessed. Because most people, the majority of people in the world today are living on pennies. Pennies on the dollar. So we have the saying in our house, when we complain about things, that's a first world problem. So, we need to come back to what the gospel is really about. The gospel isn't first and foremost about me and my happiness and my success and my prosperity. What is the gospel about? Well, Mark tells us. Go back to Mark. Mark says in verse 1, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The person of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The focus of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this theme is throughout the New Testament. It's really throughout Scripture. Because if you remember, when Jesus, after he was resurrected, and he was giving the Great Commission, um, uh, look at the end of Luke. We'll look at the, the Lucan version. He's giving the Great Commission. It says here in Luke 24, y'all there? It says, now this is post, it's a post-resurrection. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must, must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning who? He says, concerning me. He's saying the, 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 the key to unlocking the Old Testament is Christ himself. All of the things written in the Old Testament, he says, that are concerning me need to be fulfilled. And then he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you, 
are my witnesses. Jesus is saying that he himself is the theme of the old covenant. He is the theme of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. That's what he's saying. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that in Philippians 3 that the goal, the prize of the Christian life is Jesus Christ, to know Him. Amen? David said in Psalm 27, there was one thing that he desired, one thing, that that he would enter the temple and see the beauty of the Lord. When Mary sat at Jesus' feet and Martha was all frazzled about serving, what did Jesus say? She has chosen the one thing needful. You know, apart from knowing Jesus, apart from the reality of Christ, what we have in Christianity is nothing but the form of godliness without his power. For Christ is the power of the Christian life. Amen. That's why Jesus said in John 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. No, actually, what you can do is you can build huge churches. You can preach sometimes, you can lead worship, you can do all kinds of things. You can do Christianity in that sense, the external part, you can do the sacraments, you can you can do all of that apart from him, but you can't produce genuine spiritual fruit. The human heart loves religion. And many people love religion more than they love Jesus. Some people love their brand of Christianity more than they love Jesus. But they think they're loving Jesus, but they're loving religion. The focus of the gospel and the promise of the gospel is not Christianity. It is not religion. It is Jesus Christ himself. That's what the gospel is about. I got one amen for that. Go back to Mark 1. Mark says here, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice what he says here about Jesus, or what we can learn about Jesus in this simple simple phrase. Jesus is the human name, right? So this speaks of his humanity. Christ, or Messiah, or anointed one, speaks of his office, or offices, really. And Son of God speaks of his deity, So here in one verse, uh, Mark tells us that the gospel is about a person, Jesus, who is human and divine, and that this person has a specific office of Christos, or anointed one, or Messiah. So what does this mean? Well, let's unpack it just a little bit. The gospel is, first of all, about the person, meaning Jesus. Jesus is the human name for the Son of God, right? When you read Matthew and Luke, it says the angel came and said to Mary, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So this is the human name of Jesus. Jesus, the person, preexisted as the Son of God or the Word, Right? The second person of the Trinity. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
Then when that word was incarnated and when he was born, he was given the name Jesus. Okay? Jesus, as you probably know, means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is Savior. And it, it hints at, uh, some, some believe that the name Jesus itself hints at his, at his deity. But I think it mainly focuses on his humanity and the fact that it was necessary for Messiah to be human in order to be the Savior. But he's not just human, he's also divine. Because Mark says he is the Son of God. Now, if you're a true believer and you've been born of God's Spirit, you can say, I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God. But you can't say, I am the child of God. I am the Son of God. So as we, as we know, as we read through scripture, Jesus was the only begotten or the unique son of God, different than when we say we're a son of God. Now, when we're born of God's spirit, Jesus becomes our brother. I know that might sound weird to some of you, because I think of Jesus as a king, right? And and when I think of a king, for some reason, I think of somebody who's not related to me somehow. I mean, just, I don't have any kings in my family as far as I know. Um, but Jesus is our king, but he's also our brother. He even says in, in John, when he was sending Mary back to the twelve, he refers to them as his brethren now. Okay, So Jesus is our brother, but he's also our king. God's our father, Jesus is our brother. By the way, Jesus is not your father. Nope. He's your brother. God, your father. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, the gospel is about Jesus being a human person. Now, you might think, I knew that. But I think it's very easy for us to read the gospels and read them in kind of a, a Gnostic or really uh, a descetic kind of way, where we, we, we know Jesus is divine, so we, we in our minds we're really stripping him of his humanity. In other words, what's really going on isn't affecting him like it would affect a human being. You get what I'm saying? And it's very easy to do that. And when we do that, what we do is we, we're minimizing, uh, well... A lot of things. One of the things we're minimizing is we're minimizing his saving work, actually. Because the the suffering of Jesus didn't begin on the cross. The suffering of Jesus began when he was conceived. His entire life was a humiliation. I mean, for the infinite, eternal God to be conceived in the womb of a woman, it's a step down, guys. Okay, it's a step down. So, the incarnation from the very beginning, which was the conception, was a, an act of humiliation. And Jesus' entire life was a form of humiliation because his deity was veiled. And he, he subjected himself to mortal, the mortal experience. Okay? We know he was tired. We know he was hungry. You know, right? All of these things. So... That's part of his redemptive work. Because when Jesus came to redeem, he came to redeem the entire human order and the entire human experience. So he had to go through that experience 
as a human being. Jesus, when he died on the cross, died as a human being. Real blood was shed. Human blood was shed. Okay? It was real flesh and blood on the cross. It was, it was, it was uh, real nails and went through real flesh. It was all very real. And the fact that Jesus had a divine nature did not minimize his human suffering. As a matter of fact, many would argue that it actually enhanced his human suffering. Because of his, his, his um, sensitivity to evil. Now, the holier you are, the more repugnant evil is to you. Okay? Let me tell you something that might shock you. But I actually had to look at pornography one time. I had to. Think what? We were fighting pornography in our community years ago. Some of you were involved. There were a bunch of stores springing up everywhere selling, you know, triple X, quadruple X videos and bad, bad stuff. So a number of people uh, at the church, um, my wife was one of the leaders of this movement, to her credit. We uh, went in front of the stores and we, we picketed. We went to City Hall and we, we filed complaints. Um, and as a result of that, all of the stores except for one were shut down. Now, unfortunately, the Internet sprang up. And with the Internet... Well, you got a whole different landscape. But the point is, is that in that process, when I went to file a complaint, uh, the law said that if you're going to file a complaint, you have to be able to, you have to view the material and then be able to describe it. I know. Terrible. Terrible law. Doesn't matter if on the cover it tells you exactly what's going to go on, but in any way. And, and so I watched portions of it, enough, to, enough to, to, to file a complaint. And I described these scenes in a city council meeting. Yeah, well, everybody, all the aldermen were sitting there blushing. Well, they asked for it, right? So, but the thing about it was how I was actually shocked at my reaction when I viewed it. I was shocked at how repulsed I felt. And um, I think that was a good sign. You know what I'm saying? And the fact that we are accustomed to things like pornography, and it's even you know in the, in the theaters now, Fifty Shades of Perverse, um, you know, the, the fact that we're glorifying perversity, we become like desensitized to it. You know, Jesus never got desensitized to evil. It was always repugnant to him. You know, I think of the the text in Peter where Peter says, uh, talking about Lot when he was in Sodom, and and he says that that righteous man's soul was vexed, you know, by the evil in the city. Can you imagine Jesus' soul? How vexed he must have been by the the evil that we, we, we... We just take for granted. Jesus' humanity was real and it was necessary for his saving work because a man 
rebelled and brought in the moral revolution we call sin. And so a man had to reset that moral order. And Mark goes on and talks about the temptation of Jesus. Uh, three of the Gospels do, actually. And that is, you know, the, the, the New Testament answer to what happened in the garden. We have the first Adam in the garden. We have the second Adam in the wilderness. The first Adam failed. The second Adam got victory. Amen? Amen. Setting the moral order back. Reversing the curse, if you will. So, Jesus had to be a man to fulfill the work of being Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, Savior, Redeemer. But he also needed to be divine. When I say needed to be, well, he just was. (laughs) He was divine. He was truly human, which we should not minimize, and he was truly divine, which, of course, we should not minimize either. And we need to keep both of these truths before our minds as we consider the person and the work of Jesus, which is the center of the gospel. We can, we can err in, in either direction. We can forget his humanity because we're, we focus so much on the exalted Christ. Although, by the way, Jesus is still, he still has humanity. Being glorified didn't mean his humanity somehow dropped off and he just went back to being what he was before the incarnation. That's not what happened. The humanity of Jesus after the resurrection was glorified. And so now sitting next to the Father is the glorified Son who is in one person has a divine and human nature. And you're like, I can't understand that. And my answer is, I can't either. But I know it's revealed. And so we worship Jesus and he's exalted. But as we, as we think of him, we must understand and keep in mind that he was, was and is truly human while being truly divine. These two natures were essential to fulfilling his work as Christos, Messiah, anointed one. He had to suffer and die under the law to bear the penalty so that he might redeem his people. But he had to be perfect and his blood had to be of infinite value. And thus he had to be divine. The humanity of Jesus, as well as his deity, as I said, has very practical implications. One of which is We're told in the book of Hebrews that when we approach God, we're approaching God through the work of our high priest. Now, when Mark says that Jesus is the Christ, he's he's saying he's the priest. He's saying he's a prophet. He's saying he's a king because the word Christ is is the summation of all of his offices and all of his work. Okay? Look at Hebrews 4 for a moment. Hebrews 4. This is where uh, the writer brings out, well, let's go to start in chapter 2, verse 9. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things, for whom are all things, 
and by whom are all things, and bring many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, he's talking about us. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brethren. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. So he's quoting Psalms, and he's saying, this Psalm is really Jesus speaking. Well, there's, remember Luke? Jesus said things in the Psalms about me. Here's an example. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you see? What the author is telling us that Jesus' humanity was essential for his work as Christos, Messiah, particularly his work of being a priest or the high priest. Because he had to experience the temptations that we experience, the sufferings that we experience. Chapter 4. Seeing then, verse 14, 414 of Hebrews, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. What did Mark call him? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, right? Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let's let's put it in the positive instead of the negative. We do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But was all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, when you see a let us, this is an exhortation, could be a command. But it's an application of what's been said. Because this is true, because Jesus was made a little bit lower than the angels, because Jesus was, through his experience, uh, sanctified in the sense of prepared for his great work as the high priest of his people, because of this, because he's experienced what we experience, therefore, this is, therefore he's going to tell us to do something. Ready? Verse 16. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come to a throne of grace. We come to a throne of compassion, because the one sitting on that throne, the high priest, is one who has experienced the trials and temptations that we have experienced. Jesus understands. And it's not just a theoretical understanding. Jesus understands physical suffering. Jesus understands emotional suffering. 
Jesus understands poverty in a way that most of us don't. Jesus understands injustice. Jesus understands betrayal. All from experience, not just theoretically. And because he understands, he is able to sympathize or be compassionate toward his people. So the author of Hebrews tells us, because of Jesus' experience, we should come to him expecting that he will be understanding and he will be compassionate. But more than that, he will be able to give us aid. He will be able to give us help in time of need. Amen? Okay, I've been kind of rambling for a while, so let me conclude. I think that we need to evaluate the gospel we're believing. I think we need to evaluate our priorities. I think we need to ask ourselves individually if Christ, if I can say that Christ is truly the center of my gospel. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't like when people manipulate me. You know what I mean? Or use me. You ever feel like somebody's using you for something? Ever have that feeling? I don't like that feeling. Well, Jesus doesn't like it either. <laughs> now, we, we, we're exhorted to come to Jesus for help and grace and mercy and, and all these things that we get from him. That's not using Jesus in an un, unholy way. But we are using him in an unholy way if, if we make him an accessory to my personal agenda. You understand what I'm saying by that? When I make him an accessory to, to what I want versus what he wants. What he wants for my life. Jesus is the center of the gospel because apart from his personhood, his divine and human nature, and apart from his work on the cross and his resurrection, there is no gospel. Not really. Now you can take random verses and you can leave the blood out and some, some people do that now. They preach a, a bloodless Jesus, a bloodless cross. They preach a, a spiritual resurrection but not a physical resurrection. They'll use the Bible for those means. But that's not the biblical gospel. The gospel is about the real person of Jesus, who he was, what he did. And this is why in Scripture, Jesus gets to sit on the throne because of his person and his work. It says in Revelation that as John's weeping, oh, I want the scrolls to be open. I want to know what's going to happen. It's like waiting for the next you know, Hunger Games movie to come out. Oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> and then what does the word tell us? The scrolls are given to the Lamb because He is worthy. He is worthy. Why? Because He has redeemed us by His blood. He's worthy. And that's what uh, Paul is telling us in Philippians. I'm going to quote this and then we're going to close. 
says, Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, important word, therefore, because Jesus did this, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. The name of Jesus is above your name. His glory is more important than your glory. His success is more important than my success. His will is more important than my will. He's been given the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. When Mark says Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, he's asserting he was Lord. The gospel of Jesus ultimately is a gospel which exalts him and abases us. That's why the the ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry of making straight the path. Lowering the high and bringing up the low, making the path. Bringing down the exalted things so that the Lord, the true focus of the gospel, would be exalted in the eyes of all. Amen? Is Jesus truly, as we sang, the center of our lives? Is the gospel I'm imbibing, is this the gospel that exalts Jesus? Or is this the gospel where I'm seeking my own will? Important question for all of us, myself included. You can come up. The true gospel keeps Jesus at the center of every area of our life. Every area.